Charlie, save us, or we'll die. Bigger, stronger, faster, fly! Hello, welcome back to the Remedial Magic Podcast. I'm here, as always, with with Baylor and Delbert, and once again, we're diving back into Alex Quick and the Thorn Circle. Uh, guys, I think we're on Chapter 7 this week, so I hope you read the right stuff, and I believe this is going to be episode number five when it comes out. So congratulations. We made it through five episodes. Yeah, it's been a blast so far. I mean, I see no reason to ever stop. It's a great time coming in here and talking about this stuff. Yeah, my only complaint is that uh, it's kind of hot in this room, but, you know, I'll I'll make do for for the next hundreds of episodes that we have. It is pretty toasty in this room, but, you know... We're going to record this until the day that we die, so we might as well get used to it now. Yeah, and uh, Baylor, I know you might be joking with that hundreds of episodes, but I'm pretty sure book four and five are like 59 chapters each or something, so you're uh, on the money with that one. I I think one of you guys told me that uh, one of those episodes was as long as the entire Harry Potter series put together. Yeah, one of those chapters. I remember there's a chapter that took me over the course of several days to read the one chapter, so... We're definitely getting into it, but look, I look forward to the day I get to abandon my future wife and kids to come record the podcast, so that's uh, that's just a big plus for me. Yeah, time away is always good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, we're we're hopping right back into it here as just as a reminder, what we're doing here is we're reading through the fan fiction called Alex Quick and the Thorn Circle, chapter by chapter, and just kind of discussing and analyzing the content of the the book and also kind of how it relates back to the Harry Potter universe as well. And uh, we've had a good time so far. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll just continue doing that. I decided guys to add something new to the beginning of this, mainly for myself, because I can't remember anything between this and our D and D nights and school and trying to get into graduate school. So uh, I'm going to just going to do a short, really quick recap of the previous chapter so that we all kind of uh, remember the just the very basic stuff that happened there. So going back to chapter six, just really quickly, Alex visited the goblin market to get her school supplies, her wand, and a familiar. Uh, she got into a fight there and was warned that any other misbehavior would not be good for her future as a student at Charmbridge. So that's the recap. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a pretty good recap. I know it was a super long episode last week. We had a lot to talk about as far as world building and stuff. Not going to be nearly as long this week, but that sums up the majority of what happens. So if you, uh, if you're looking for extra details, go back and listen to uh, the episode where we talk about chapter six. It's a pretty good one, but hilariously episode four, chapter six inside of episode four, quick maths. We should uh, rebrand, for sure. For sure. Uh, so, as always, we're going to start here with our three-sentence summary of the chapter. Um, Baylor, take it away. Alex's parents do not like Charlie, but they work out a deal so he can stay at home until she leaves for Charmbridge. Alex doesn't get in trouble while at home. Alex comes across a bridge that isn't what it seems. Wow. Missed some stuff there, but probably due to my very short sentence there. That's all right. Summary's not for the entire thing. It's just for the important stuff. And, you know, the three-sentence summary is 
is never very good anyway, so here we are. <laughs> as long as one person laughed out loud at home, I think it was a, a success. So yeah, this chapter, uh, right away, it's called The Invisible Bridge. And so that ties directly into what I added to the three-sentence summary, but we're not going to get there till the end of the chapter. Uh, where we start is with Alex returning home from her trip to the Goblin Market with Charlie the Raven in tow, her familiar, and pretty much right away there's conflict at home once again because as soon as Alex walks in the door with Charlie the Raven, her stepfather Archie tells her that he wants to shoot it. Yeah, uh, going back to that really great relationship between Archie and Alex. I mean, I can understand the frustration between, uh, you know, telling your kid not to have a pet and then bringing one home. But uh, threatening a uh, death is probably not the best way of dealing with it. I will say that throughout this chapter, we see many instances that remind me specifically of what America is. And this was a perfect example of today's America. Everybody wants to shoot something. It's uh, It was certainly interesting. And Alex's mom isn't too happy about the raven being there either. She kind of says, hey, we told you you're not allowed to have a pet here because you're grounded and that kind of stuff. But. Charlie, or sorry, Archie even goes so far as to, as Alex is leaving the room to go upstairs for the night, to like make finger guns at the Raven and pretend like he's shooting it as it's walking away. Like what, what is this relationship between him and his stepdaughter that he's willing to do that? Yeah. And I'm a little bit torn on it because on one hand, I think it's pretty horrible that, you know, given the status of their relationship that we see that he's doing this stuff. But if it was a much more genuine relationship, I would think it borders along the line of, like, bad dad jokes, basically. Yeah, it, in that situation, I would agree with that. But I think we're at the point where we know that that's not necessarily what's going on here. Archie's just kind of a jerk. Yeah, he's kind of a total jerk. And I, and it, I wanted to bring up an interesting point that with Harry Potter and this book, we see, like, the pets seem to understand humans much more than what our pets understand us in real life. And uh, specifically... We see uh, Archie saying that the raven is the same damn thing as a crow. And then uh, he says, like you guys were saying, that he's good for nothing but target practice. But Charlie screeches angrily. And then later in the chapter, later on the same page, in fact, uh, we see Alex tell Charlie, you know, don't worry, Archie isn't really going to shoot you. And if he does, I have a wand to blow, blow him away. And we see Charlie make an approving uh, chuckling sound, it seems like. And so I just wanted to point out that it, it's interesting that these magical pets, familiars, whatever you want to call them, uh, understand their humans a lot more than muggle pets seem to do. Yeah, and I mean, just look at Wormtail. That guy understood humans pretty well. Indeed he did. Uh, it's yet to be seen if Charlie will expose himself as the person who brought back the Dark Lord or not. But I think you're right when you say that there is a distinct difference between creatures that are that are raised in the magical world versus creatures that are raised in the muggle world. There's definitely some extra understanding uh, being added to the situation there. And so after this weird interaction between Alex and Archie, she goes upstairs and we get kind of a quick summary of what the next four days of her life are like. And as you pointed out, Delbert, for the first time in the book so far, when Alex is told not to get in trouble, she actually does not get in trouble. She just hangs out. She spends time reading and studying more about ravens um, and kind of looking at that locket again that's been mentioned so many times so far, trying to figure out 
ways to open it past what she's already tried so far. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting about the locket is that Charlie the Raven is absolutely fascinated by it. He like will not leave it alone. In fact, the locket and the bracelet, and while Alex does allow him to have it in his cage occasionally, uh, when she goes to take it away for the night or to wear the locket or to wear the bracelet, Charlie uh, gets visibly agitated at her for that. And I kind of thought that was interesting because to me, it could be that he's a raven and it's a shiny locket and a shiny bracelet. And uh, it's just attracting him for that reason. But we already know that this is a magical bird. And so there's probably something else going on. Right. Yeah. And I definitely think I saw it the way that you did or what you were saying there, where it it's something shiny. It's a bird. It's, you know, reaching to hold on to it because for some reason the bird thinks it has value. But it is definitely interesting that it's these two magical objects for sure. I wanted to point out that it seems here Charlie almost matches Alex's behavior. Like we saw with her brace, her bracelet in the Naid Pond or, or Old Larkin Pond, I guess. When it's hers, it's hers, and she wants it back no matter what the cost is. And I kind of think Charlie kind of has that same attitude towards belongings. Well, and there's, It also leads me to believe that there's some sort of connection between the guy that's inside the locket, that's in that picture inside the locket, and something to do with with dark magic or with birds like ravens because, uh, we, as we know, everybody else believes that Alex picked a, a familiar associated with dark magic, and now that familiar is get, uh, getting this attachment to this locket that we know very well to be magical. And so I just thought that was something interesting, some interesting behavior from Charlie the Raven right away. And so this is kind of what happens over the next few days in the book. And then eventually the day arrives that it's time for Alex to leave for Charmbridge. And I remember not necessarily the first time I went to elementary school, but certainly the first time I went to middle school being nervous about going to a new building to a place where I would be actually interacting with people older than me. Um, and Alex kind of feels the same way. It, it mentions in there that she hasn't been nervous to go to school in a long time, but now she is feeling a little bit nervous, which I think is natural. Yeah, that's definitely a universal feeling. I don't necessarily remember the specific times of nervousness, but I know my first time going off to university, I was extremely nervous. I didn't know anyone. Um, like you're saying, different buildings. I know I got lost a couple times, and that certainly didn't help either. Yeah, I can only like compare it to where a kid moves in the middle of a one of the middle years of of the schooling. I, I would imagine can imagine what it's like to have certain friends and certain teachers that you trust and and kind of know who to avoid, so to speak. But then being ushered off to a completely new school where you don't know anybody other than. Um, you know, a one day shopping trip. Yeah. And so that's pretty natural, but uh, from what we know about Alex so far, it's a, it's a different look than what we usually get at her. She doesn't usually seem nervous about anything. And so I think maybe we're seeing the first time where she feels like something is happening. That's a little bit too big for her to handle, which, you know, she's an 11 year old girl. That's bound to happen. Even what you're saying, like she seems to be extremely confident in herself. 
But going to even Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone movie, Draco Malfoy seems very um, sure of himself as well. But during the sorting hat scene, he is definitely relieved to have been sorted into Slytherin. There's definitely that look of uh, happiness on his face. So it seems like no matter who you are, what you come from, there's probably a lot of that nervousness. For sure. I mean, something we have to remember as we read this is that we're reading a story mainly centered around young children. So it's uh, these feelings that, that we see that we might go now, like in hindsight, oh, you don't need to be nervous about going to school. Uh, it's understandable why she's feeling this way. And I think her mom probably knows that she's feeling this way as well because it's it's stated in there that Claudia cooks Alex a much fancier and better breakfast than she normally does. And even Archie, good old Archie, goes out of his way to to help out. He carries Alex's suitcase outside for, uh, outside for her. Now, whether he's doing that to try to help or he's doing that because he's excited she's leaving – that's left up in the air. But either way, we see them helping her out more than they have been so far. Definitely the latter. Her mom does mention when she leaves, I want you to call or write at least once a week. I was kind of curious how that would go here at an American wizarding school, if they would actually have phones. I'm guessing they don't have phones, but I would wonder what the uh, means of communication will be. Yeah, that's a good thought. and I think her mom's saying call mostly out of ignorance because... She obviously doesn't know if that stuff exists in the wizarding world necessarily or not. And so call her right, which it's probably because she's going to miss Alex regardless of their little conflicts that they have. And I thought something was a little bit sad in there is that it mentions that Alex didn't know if she would miss her mom or not. Right. Yeah, that's sad. And I don't want to go off topic here, but I wanted to ask you guys, I don't know if it's been explained throughout the book of what year this is happening. Do we have a setting or an exact year yet? Or is that still left in the air? I'm not sure. I think in like the the summary or the intro to the whole book, it talks about it being like 20 years after the events of the Battle of Hogwarts. Okay. I mean, it was published. This book was published in 2007, so I guess that'd be 10 years after the Battle of Hogwarts, wouldn't it? Right. So basically, the point I wanted to bring up is whether or not something like a cell phone would even be available. Because I know you were saying in American schools, does that matter? But even during the original series, that would have been like right at the age of cell phones coming out. So it would be unlikely most of those people would have been able to have them anyways. Yeah, I'm sure that the original iPhone had just come out and everybody was <laughs> shitting on it in the press and everything. So right. I'm sure they were still using those Motorola flips or whatever. The I think the original them. iPhone came out in 2007. So the timelines match up pretty well. Yeah. So maybe they all have iPhones at their wizarding school. <laughs> so, yeah. Alex eats breakfast, says goodbye to Archie, and then her and her mom head down to the bus stop where she's going to be picked up by the, the Charmbridge bus, the same bus that we've talked about before. And uh, when she gets there, she sees Brian and she sees Bonnie and she sees that Billy Boggleston kid at the bus stop getting ready to go off to their first day of school for the new school year at Larkin Mills Elementary School. And uh, Alex reacts maybe more maturely to this than I would have expected her to. It's like, I like this scene because she looks at Brian and Bonnie and her mom says, don't you want to say goodbye? And she says, no, we've already said our goodbyes. And the Billy Boggleston kid is making fun of her and calling her names and stuff. And she doesn't react to that. It's almost like we're getting this scene as a way for Alex to really say goodbye. Finally, finally, officially say goodbye to 
her muggle friends and a lot of her muggle life because uh in in previous chapters we've seen when the billy kid especially makes fun of her but even when brian and bonnie don't talk to her she gets upset and pursues that and here she doesn't do that at all well i think too she's also been humbled a little bit right during the fight in chapter six she tries to hex a kid and it doesn't work so she's going to a place that she probably realizes she's gonna fit in a lot better so there's not there's no reason to cry over spilled milk when she's leaving the muggle world if she wasn't destined to be there well, I think, too, I mean, a lot of the, the lead up to her getting on the bus, she's talking about how she's waiting for the wrath of Miss Grimm in either the form of a howler or just anticipating it when she gets to school. So I think that also plays a part in it, just keeping her kind of minding, you know, minding her, her own business kind of stuff. Sure. I mean, minding her own business, her mind is definitely elsewhere. I mean, I know for sure when I've been in situations where I've been uncomfortable I ignore things that would normally upset me or make me happy because I'm fixated on the thing that's making me uncomfortable. So that is definitely something that could be happening here as well. And so, yeah, the bus pulls up and Alex gets on and uh, Darla and Angelique are already on the bus. They're there. But uh, Alex also knows that Anna and... The Pritchards, Constance and Forbearance, are not going to be there because they're already at school and have been there since before they went to the Goblin Market. Uh, and so we're going to get more quality time with Darla, especially here, and get to hear more about her kind of skewed views of how people should be treated based on if they're muggle-born or pureblood. I did want to bring up first before we hop into that discussion, uh, we're introduced to what you guys have talked about for weeks and i've been waiting for it the jarvie oh yes and man i from from your guys's conversation uh leading up to this point i was completely caught off guard with that it was actually just uh just a rude animal that repeated rude phase, uh, phrases this is uh in my opinion this is a ridiculous magical beast and i do not like it I have the exact opposite opinion. I know we've gone rounds, Brady. I think this is such a hilarious character. And as far as like a literary or storytelling standpoint, I enjoy that this minor little pet can be the comic relief. Because I know in other stories, including the movies of the original series, when you turn them, you need to have some sort of comic relief. And they just chose to use Ron Weasley throughout that through the movies and i mean i think that damaged his character so i enjoy the fact that it's coming from something that so far doesn't seem that important it does say a few things and we're going to talk about one of those things in particular as we get to it but again we've got another magical beast already so we're getting tons of magical beasts in this series and much like we did with the kappa i wanted to get into my actual fantastic beasts book and get some information about this jarvie I got some good stuff and also some interesting stuff, I think, and also a direct connection to something that's happening in the Harry Potter world now. And so what this says about the Jarvie is that it's a ferret-like creature that mostly memorizes rude phrases, which we've established. It does memorize rude phrases, and it's not limited to like kid-like insults. It says some pretty mean stuff. Having a true conversation with a Jarvie is impossible. This is straight from the handwriting of Newt Scamander himself. The creature that he came across used short, usually rude statements and phrases and uttered them in an almost constant stream, and so you couldn't really get a word in edgewise. And I'm talking 
if I had this creature next to me right now and it was doing this, I would be hating every moment of that experience. Well, I'll just I'll just read a little dialogue from the from the story here. Uh, so Darla is kind of describing, uh, or I guess Angelique and Darla are describing it. Darla goes, Jarvis look like ferrets, but they can talk. Unfortunately, they mostly just memorize rude phrases. Don't you ever stop yapping, the creature interrupted. Her name is Honey. Alexandra fought, found this quite amusing. Mudblood, screeched the Jarvie. Yes, Angelique sighed. Of course, I didn't know she was a Jarvie when I named her. Bunch of hens squawking. Cluck, 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 mocked the Jarvie. I just thought it was interesting how they're not even talking directly to this creature, but it's still uh, just interrupting with these rude phrases just for the hell of it, it seems like. Yeah, and I, I want to talk more about it using the term mudblood here in a second, but before we get there, Delbert, uh, since you like the Jarvie so much, I wondered if you wanted to read, I just bolded it in the show notes, if you wanted to read this little tidbit I learned about the Jarvie today when I was researching for the show. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, a Franciscan monk, Brother Benedict, once had a run-in with a Jarvie in the grounds of his monastery. The Jarvie called him a baldy, <laughs> then bit him on the nose so hard that the monk was excused from Vespers. However, the incident did call Brother Benedict's testimony into question when he related, it, and the friar wondered if he'd been drinking Brother Boniface's turnip wine. Okay, so we have a Jarvie. Calling a monk baldy, which is a ridiculous insult that like a three-year-old would use. And then on top of that, it bites the monk. And when the monk goes and tells the other brothers of the of the monastery, they don't believe him. And this doesn't really have much to do with it, but I just read this today and I was like, this adds to how ridiculous this thing is. Truly. I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm so glad you found this. I mean, we're talking that this a creature that is driving people of God to call each other liars. Yeah, I mean, that's how terrible this thing is. Maybe the Jarvie's the uh, bad guy of the story. Maybe. Who knows? Uh, but something more relevant to what's happening in the Harry Potter world in real life, you know, because we've got Fantastic Beasts getting ready to come out again in April. And I just thought that this was also pretty interesting is that it says that Newt Scamander the author of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, was involved in an incident at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry uh, due to the illegal possession of a magical beast causing endangerment of human life and violation of animal welfare laws. And the beast in question was a Jarvie. So, I have a couple of questions. First, what is a Jarvie going to do that's going to endanger multiple people's lives? I have no idea. When I initially read this in these notes, I was like, what is happening? Like, if it just yells and can bite a nose, how is it endangering anyone? Kind of makes me wonder if they're smarter than we see here in the book. Um, maybe they're the longer that they're in someone's <laughs> possession, the more devious and cunning they get. And then, you know, eventually end up devising a, mur a murderous plot or something. I'm not sure. I mean, who knows? And then secondly, and maybe it's not so much a question as something I just thought was cool, is that in the Fantastic Beasts franchise, in the movies, it is canon that Newt Scamander was expelled from Hogwarts for something to do with a magical beast. Is this it? Is the Jarvie the culprit? Yeah, I mean, I'm excited to see it. I hope it gets addressed in one of the movies coming out soon. I mean, absolutely insane. I'm certain if it was if it was this or a Jarvie that caused that, it was probably named Chad. 
Yeah, fair. that's fair. Just one thing I wanted to say before we get off the uh, topic of the Jarvi is this was mistaken to be a ferret. So we have essentially what we would think of as a talking ferret, correct? That makes sense yeah, so far? Yeah, I think so. Ferrets eat other animals in the wild. How has this thing survived if right before it's hunting its prey, it shouts out and calls it an idiot? <laughs> There's a field mouse walking in front of it, and it's like, you dumb tail haver. It, and it just a, still manages to feast? It's a good question. You heard it here first, folks. Our podcast official stance on the Jarvi is it's a ridiculous animal that Delbert likes for some reason. Absolutely. And I'm surprised it's made it through this stage of evolution. Yeah. Also, shout out Wizard Weezes. We have some clutch tongue-tongue toffee coming in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And shutting the Jarvi up with a massive tongue. It's true. That is the way to to get the Jarvi to be quiet is to feed it tongue-tongue toffee, which my understanding of that from the original series was that if you didn't stop that soon enough, it would result in you choking to death on your own tongue. So there's hope. There's hope yet. Now you just hold on there, buster. <laughs> So, yeah, the Jarvie calls Alex a mudblood, and that is like, we just had a nice, fun discussion about the Jarvie, but I just want to know what you guys think. Where did it hear that word? We're talking about a creature that memorizes ugly phrases, right? So, Angelique owns the Jarvie. Does that mean Angelique is using this word at home, or that somebody is using it in her home, or did it learn it? just that quick from somebody else i'm i was just curious what you guys thought i kind of was wondering if maybe it just heard it in passing in the uh, familiar shop but that also would bring up the question like what kind of business are they doing in this familiar shop if they're there's people using that kind of language all the time yeah i actually thought along the same lines because especially in the introduction to all these characters darla angelique the pritchards and anna it seems that Darla is almost like accidentally a uh, has a superior superiority complex, but it does specify that when Angelique's telling Alex stuff that she's doing it not unkindly. So it seems out of her character thus far to be the person that it learned the language from. I also wonder maybe if her home life is a little shaky. And maybe that's just how her family is. Yeah, it definitely could be. It does have to be something like that. And, you know, she's good friends with Darla. And maybe she's using that type of language around Darla to try to impress her. Or I'm not sure what. But moving past that, um, they drive on the Automagica for just a little bit. And then they pick up David, which is the person. We've talked about him before. And he walks in wearing a sports jersey and expensive-looking sneakers. And... For some reason, the very first thing he says when he's greeting everybody is, I dare somebody to call me a mudblood again. I'm thinking we just missed some dialogue here, but that is the first thing that it says that he says. And that leads to an interesting interaction with Darla because she responds with, don't worry. No one important is going to hold it against you that you are, you know, muggle-born. Which, here we are seeing Darla's, uh, how should I say it, her innate prejudice once again but i'm wondering if this is more than an innate prejudice if this is like a legitimate fear of being associated with muggleborns because alex points out that even darla's grandma was a muggle and darla gets pretty flustered pretty quick about that well i had said earlier in the chapter like we're gonna see a lot of things that remind me of today's america and this was definitely one of them because we 
one of the seems like the most common phrases you hear, especially from white people, is they'll start by saying, I'm not a racist, but I'm not sexist, but etc. And I kind of think that I don't think Darla is uh, has bloodline racism or prejudice, but I feel like she's just one of those people where she's, you know, I don't want to I want to make sure I'm not thought of that way. Yeah, and just to build on that, trying to stay a little bit outside of the political realm, I've seen a lot of stuff online, on Reddit, on TikTok, whatever, where, you know, some delivery guy with UPS or DoorDash or whatever, some gentleman that happens to be black or Mexican or whatever it may be, goes into an area and someone that thinks they're doing the right thing, whether it be an HOA person or some manager at a store, is telling them, they're doing something wrong when in fact they're not. And those people, a lot of the times don't even realize what they're doing. But when it's shown in the limelight like this, I mean, you definitely have to question yourself. (laughs) Uh, Because of that, you know, because of her getting flustered, David says something that the first couple times I read this, I didn't read into it at all because I didn't understand it. But today I was like, you know what? I'm going to Google what he says here. And all he says is, one drop, don't kid yourself, girl. And I was like, that's such a weird thing to say. So I Googled it, and I don't know if you guys have heard of this before, but there was something at one point called the one drop rule, which is like a a social and legal principle of racial, racial classification that was prominent in the U.S. in the 20th century that just asserted that any person with even one ancestor of black ancestry, just so like one drop of black blood, is considered black. And so David's like, first of all, clearly been educated by his family at home or somebody about what his people have gone through in the past. But secondly, he's like turning that around and saying to Darla, well, you know, if you have one muggle ancestor, then you're muggle born or you at least have muggle blood. I, I only knew about this from a couple years ago because I've seen some comedy sketches like on Key and Peele or some other com- uh, comedians similar to them where they do things stated by, oh, what percentage of this race or what percentage of this culture are you? Are you allowed to do things that that culture is traditionally allowed to do? So that's actually how I found out about this a couple years back is I was looking into what like what percentage would make you considered you know, able to be in that culture. Sure. So that's the only reason I've heard of that before. Yeah. And so I just found that to be, first of all, a really cool inclusion by the author, by Inverardi. And secondly, I just, I don't know. I thought David's character knowing about this and asserting himself in this way is a really good way to set up his character for what he is. You know, somebody who, who isn't going to just like listen to somebody talk about Muggleborns in the way Darla likes to and stand there and, and listen to it. He's going to speak up, which I think is a cool thing and also quite a, kind of educational since I had no idea about this before reading this book. I kind of uh, thought it was interesting that David uh, almost showed up completely different than he did for the shopping trip. How I took it when I read through it, um, when he showed up for the shopping trip, he was just uh, your average kid, you know. Obviously, they t- you know, they talked about it the last time. He was muggle-born, but other than that, he wasn't notable to me right off the bat. And then we have the whole scene at the store with the Ozarkers and how there's almost like a change in David's attitude towards other wizards at that moment. 
And then when he hopped on the bus and he's, you know, wearing these expensive sneakers and he, uh, I think, well, also, I mean, Alex had gotten dressed in her school clothes, but David was still wearing muggle attire. And so I, my thought was he was trying to look as muggle as he could because he was looking for trouble in a, in a sense because he wanted to set the tone like, yeah, you got me that one time, but I'm not someone to mess with kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it's a lot different from who we know as like the most prominent Muggleborn in the original series, Hermione. She doesn't ever take a hard stance against it. Sure, Ron and Harry stick up for her and things like that, and the whole premise of the story, you know, there's a lot of stuff about blood status doesn't matter. But it's nice to see a character that comes in with that confidence that says, this doesn't matter to me. If you want to talk about it, we're going to have a problem. And I will say, like you said, you're glad Inverarity included that. I'm glad that he's not shied away from this idea of inherent prejudice and racism that it does exist in American culture even today. And so I'm glad that we're seeing this and, you know, that this book's a little bit more of a mature audience uh, centric book. So I'm glad that we're seeing this and, and are able to talk about it. Yeah, for sure. And so uh, this, this kind of conversation just leads me to believe that this is something we're going to be seeing more and more of as we read. Uh, and so I'm excited about that because I think it leads to a, like a solid conflict that has real world implications. And so after this happens, the remainder of the bus ride is pretty casual. Uh, David tells Alex that they have to take their spawn the day after they arrive, um, which is that big test that kind of gauges their magical ability. He, or Alex finds out that she's going to have to live in a dorm room with a roommate, and she makes note to herself that she really hopes she's not living with Darla or Angelique. Um, she thinks maybe... Anna Chu or the Pritchards would make good roommates. Um, and then the bus leaves the Automagica for a long green valley with no city in sight. And so, uh, Delbert, I wondered if you wanted to just read the description of this valley. I think it did, where the school is located is important for people to be able to picture because, like, where Hogwarts was located was iconic, you know, next to a big forest, a sprawling lake, mountains surrounding it. So, uh, if you want to go ahead and read this description for us. Yeah, sure. Behind them was a rocky cliff face through which the road had been carved, rising only a little further above them before the road curved around and headed back down the other side of the mountain. The valley was vast and full of lush summer greenery that hadn't yet begun to, cha began, begun to change for the fall. It extended as far as Alexander could see in either direction, and it was nearly a mile across to the rose-colored cliffs on the other side and a half mile deep. While the valley floor was mostly tree-covered, here and there she could see segments of river winding its way along the length. So yeah, this feels like a pretty appropriate place to have a school where you would want to avoid people finding it. I mean, it, this is uh, kind of akin to like a place you might see uh, in Norway or in, in other places where there's big tall mountains and lots of green uh, greenery around and it it's appropriate for kind of the area where this is set like the Chicago area we know there's lots of forests and things like that there so I thought it was a cool description yeah and just to add to the grandeur of the whole scene for you listeners out there they do mention that the cliff drop uh, is a half mile deep so this is a intense cliff like 
we're talking, you know, 2,500 feet thereabouts. So that, I mean, it's a huge valley, breathtaking valley. Yeah. And I'm not familiar with the Chicago area, but so far we've caught a lot of stuff that Inverarity has included appropriately into this. So I'm assuming that um, he has seen this area or visited something like this in the general vicinity. So, I mean, it's interesting that I would have never put Chicago near something like that. And I don't know necessarily how close it is to Chicago because they were on the Auto Magica, which allows them to travel really far in short amounts of time. So it could be anywhere that's like this, but uh, I just think that it's it's an, it's a neat place, and I wanted the listeners to to be able to picture kind of where this school is because I think it's uh, I just think it's important for for context purposes. And so once they arrive at the school, old the bus driver Myth speaks, kicks them all out, tells them to grab their stuff and get out. I'm sure she's tired of the, the same group of kids at this point. And as soon as they get out, Alex is standing there looking around and. From behind, she hears a voice, and the voice just says, Quite a view, ain't it, Starshine? And let me tell you what, having read this, that is a welcoming thing to, to read. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that gives me hope going forward, I guess. <laughs> uh, so we're introduced to a man who is described as being tall, with long blonde hair, a beard, and a mustache. Uh, he's got bright blue eyes. He's also got a ponytail, and he's got a bright-colored scarf around his head, and he's wearing a tie-dyed shirt. So we're talking about somebody who does not fit the vibe of this story so far. He's definitely a little bit eccentric compared to what we've seen so far. Um, his introduction is super informal. So, I mean, it's a little bit different than how Dean Grimm and Mrs. Speaks has been uh, talking to the children. So it's a nice, refreshing change. So this guy's name is Ben Journey. And that's a fine name, whatever. Uh, Alex does not like that he called her Starshine. And that's fine. I mean, people want to be called by their names, and Alex is definitely somebody who would want to be called by their name. His response is a little suspect, in my opinion. It's a little bit strange. He responds by saying, well, I call all the girls at Charmbridge Starshine. That I don't know how much I care for that. Yeah, I liked it a lot more before he said that statement. I was like, oh, cool. Just has, like, fun names for people. Oh, he uses the same one for everyone. Yeah, it's like, we don't need to be having a pet name for the students at a school. Yeah, I know? wonder if he has a name for all the men as well. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, he tells Alex that his role is basically to be the custodian and the groundskeeper and the guy who tracks down students who get into trouble. And Alex thinks he's pretty weird. Yeah, I mean, David says he looks like a hippie. And then we get another brilliant, semi-prejudicial description from Darla Yeah, she, about the hippies. She calls, she says, well, he's probably a radicalist, which radicalists seem like an interesting group of people based on the description that they give us in the book, right? I mean, it says that they're wizarding families from California, so that makes sense. That's where all the hippies must live is California. And they're wizarding families who started acting like, like the stereotypical hippies that you would uh, see in like American media and that kind of stuff. And, but they had some interesting, they were more than just a group of weirdos, right? They had some interesting like political stances going on. Yeah. I mean, clearly the, uh, most strange thing that's talked about here is how they, uh, broke the statute of secrecy and tried to teach muggles how to use magic. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a big deal, right? We're talking, as far as we know, the statute of secrecy is international. It's like worldwide type stuff. You've got this group saying, no, 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 we can teach them magic. We can show them the way. Um, you know, in, in a typical kind of a hippie stereotype fashion, I mean, they're like lovers of everything, right? Like lovers of the earth, lovers of the stars, lovers of the people kind of thing. And that's kind of where I think that that came from because they also were trying to uh, imitate the muggles and kind of live with them. And I think they were just, you know, peace, love, and unity kind of thing. And yeah, I mean, they even started their own, their own school called Sedona. And so, um, clearly they, they had a, quite a community built up for some time. Yeah. And one thing that I doubt you two put together, but that I definitely wanted to, uh, talk about is how after reading this, I now just assume that LSD and acid are just, uh, wizarding candies that were given to people by the uh, wizards in California. Well, sure. You have to unlock their inner eye somehow, yeah. you know, and uh, something else that the radicalists, as they're called, did is they started a movement to end the entire confederation, like break apart what is essentially the United States of America for wizards. And so um, I suppose that probably went along with their movement to educate the muggles, but this is like a pretty anarchist thing to do you know the let's they don't they're not giving us our way let's take down the government and so that's uh i just think that's interesting and i hope we get to learn more about the radicalists as time goes on because uh these are the first people we've ever heard of in any harry potter setting talk about trying to give muggles access to magic and one thing i just wanted to bring up as well we missed one earlier so i'll just bring them both up now is we hear about the first other schools in this chapter so we hear about Sedona, I believe it's pronounced, for the uh, California school. And we also miss during the bus ride, they bring up Baleswood, a school somewhere near New Orleans. Yeah, and they they go out of their way to mention that prior to the Automagica being built, there wasn't as much access to big schools like Charmbridge. And so people instead went to like local schools or they were homeschooled. And so... That Baleswood school that's by New Orleans was a local school, and Angelique actually says that she was originally going to go there before getting accepted to Charmbridge. And so uh, there's lots of different schools, apparently, in the American Confederation of yeah. Wizards. And, and so that's. I'm a little bit excited because I know when I asked Baylor, where do you think the other three big schools are? He said Texas for one of them. Maybe if it's just a little bit west of New Orleans, we might still have that dream alive. For sure. Honestly, I should have realized just all the the you know full, uh, the all the lore and the juju with New Orleans. I should have definitely guessed there. That's actually a really good point that I hadn't thought of. Yeah, I literally until this moment had not considered that. I mean, either way, and so we learn about these radicalist people, which is cool. It's an interesting discussion that I hope gets brought up again. Uh, and then after that conversation ends, they get instructed that everybody has to cross this bridge that seemingly isn't there. It's called the Invisible Bridge for a reason. It's because it's invisible. And uh, all the older kids are, like, trying to freak everybody out. You know, they're doing the typical thing older kids do. Like, it's been 10 years since somebody's fallen off of this. Don't fall off now. You know, that kind of stuff. And course alex is kind of back to her old self and decides she's going to be the first person to cross the bridge but charlie the raven escapes his cage somehow and flies away and lands on top of 
the the bus, the Charmbridge bus, and I, lo and behold, who's able to go over and talk Charlie down? Good old Ben Journey. Ben Journey. Yeah. The custodian. Slowly becoming my favorite character. Yeah, and we kind of see him play up, Inverarty play up the hippie kind of more. He kind of stares off, kind of unfocused, off somewhere behind Charlie. And then he also speaks in a very long and slow kind of drawl like this. He does, and I like. Does this mean that Ben Journey is the animal whisperer? I mean, he says he's the groundskeeper. Are we having a second go at Hagrid here, or is he able to get Charlie down off the bus for some other, more nefarious reason? If if it's an adult that's aware of wizardry or magic. I would assume there's an easier way to do it with some sort of spell rather than, you know, walk over there and talk to it. Yeah, you would think so, but uh, either way, they're able to get Charlie down and back into the cage so that they can, so that Alex and David, who waited for Alex, can cross the bridge together. Uh, It doesn't totally go to plan, though, because (laughs) as they get about halfway across the bridge, it disappears from under their feet and they fall seemingly to their death. Yep. Long fall, though. 2,500 feet is what I heard. Long fall. Long enough for Alex to save the day with some more rhyming magic. Uh, she just, as she's falling, has the wherewithal to come up with a short poem, which is, you know, clutch. Incredible. In that situation. But she just says, Charlie, save us or we'll die. Bigger, stronger, faster, fly. And in my notes I have here, it says, Charlie saves David and Alex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He uh, he becomes the size of a very large bird and uh, grasps them in the talons, and that's where the chapter leaves off. So is Charlie going to eat them both? We'll find out next week. I will say that I, since I haven't read this before, obviously you guys have, so you probably know it's Charlie, but uh, the way I understood it, uh, she thought her spell failed at first um, because nothing happened, and then, and then the talons did grab her, so... Um, I took it as we didn't know if it was if it was Charlie or, you know, Mrs. Speaks was actually an, an uh, you know, a an animagus. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the word. You know, turned into a, a a hawk or a falcon or something. But well, shoot, that's my bad. I shouldn't have said that then. Yeah, I mean, either way, but uh, I guess the end of the chapter is that Alex and David fall to their death almost, and then they get saved by some sort of winged creature. And that's kind of where it leaves us. I think it leaves us with saying that Alex and David get laid on the grass on the other side of the bridge. And they both passed out. Then they both pass out and the chapter ends there. Yeah. So that's chapter seven. It's a, it was a short chapter, but there was some good stuff to talk about in there, man. The, the Jarvie was very interesting to read about earlier today. And the whole one drop of blood thing is just a really good inclusion in my opinion. Yeah, and the uh comedic genius in me would just like to applaud the actor for some of the comedy so far. We had the troll booth earlier. Now we're being left off at a pretty good cliffhanger. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, this will be our last episode of the podcast. <laughs> uh I figure now uh since the chapter's over, Delbert, we could hop right into casting for this week. So, why don't you go ahead and tell us who we're going to cast? Yeah, so we decided this week that we are going to do Ben Journey because he's, you know, introduced as a character in this chapter. Um we get some details about him, some history about him or what we think is history. So, I figured it would be a uh, appropriate character. Brady, how about you start us off? All right. So, thinking of Ben Journey, I 
agree with Baylor. He, or I don't agree, I guess, but it did say in the book he talks slowly with a long drawl. He's got blonde hair. Um, I picture him as like kind of like a middle-aged man, like 50 or so. And so I went ahead and went with Jeff Daniels of Dumb and Dumber fame and a little bit more recent The Newsroom. Uh, he's a versatile guy. I think he could pull this role off pretty well. I definitely know that he could play the guy that talks slow and says weird things. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of the newsroom, but Dumb and Dumber is a cult classic at this point. For so. sure. Yeah, definitely iconic there. All right, Baylor, how about you? Who do you have for your cast? So I'm not going to lie. I just kind of Googled hippie actors because I, like I said in previous episodes, I'm not very up up to snuff with the actors in today's uh casting culture but the guy who struck me his name is dave allen and hilariously first i saw his picture and i was like yeah he looks exactly like the description in the book i mean long blonde hair uh blonde beard with gray in both the hair and beard looks like a tall and skinny guy from the picture i looked up Uh, but hilariously played in one of my favorite shows from my childhood, he played Mr. Quest from uh, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide. So that was a pleasant surprise when I was research- researching him. Incredible. After seeing who you have to offer, I will already tell you that mine is going to be a huge letdown, and I've shifted to your script for sure. However, before I learned of this man's existence, my casting choice was the uh, star-studded, wowing actor of Owen Wilson. Okay. <laughs> so the yeah, biggest thing one. is I wanted the blonde hair. I could see him doing a ponytail and kind of that comedic feel. Now, I haven't seen Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, so I don't know how that guy's acting actually is, but his looks are spot on to what I was originally imagining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would uh, I would go out on a limb here and say you won this casting, this go-around, Baylor. But oh, yeah. Owen Wilson, I mean, the guy fits in anywhere. He's, he'll do all right. Yeah. I'm, he's got the experience. For sure. He was great in that uh, Loki series. So. He was really good in that. Yeah. A really good voice actor, too. Oh, yeah. Likes those cars. True. Little Lightning McQueen in oh, here. Oh, okay. I was like, what are you guys <laughs> talking about? But that makes sense. Was he Lightning McQueen? He, he was. was. Incredible. Wow. So there's the casting segment for this week. Go ahead and mark it down on your spreadsheets at home if you're playing along. Um, I'm sure there'll be something on our social media about who would you cast and why so go ahead and interact with that as well and i guess the last thing we have to do here is baylor we have uh your prediction so let's start by listening to your prediction from last week so we can give it a grade and then we'll hop into your prediction uh for the for chapter eight all right so as we heard at the end of the or not heard but read at the end of the chapter she's told hey you have four days or, yeah, the bus will be back four days. We'll take you to Charm Bridge, whatever, la di da da Life is all good. Uh, a couple things about Charm Bridge I think will happen. I think, I think hilariously Charm Bridge will be hidden on the Chicago Loyola campus, which I just think would be great. You have wizard students intermingling with college students. It would be a little odd to see random 11-year-olds running around, but, <laughs> hey, we're, that's what we're going to find out here in the next chapter. I also think it'll be hidden in plain sight. It'll be a building that's under construction on the campus or, you know, wherever it is. I just think it'll be similar to Miss Grimm's car, uh, the laundromat, the deli, whatever. They're hidden in the in the American environment. And then I just think, you know, we'll get the introduction as the first six chapters have gone. 
a lot of story building about what the American wizarding education is. All right, so there you heard it. It's Baylor's prediction from last week about Chapter 7. Um, you know, I don't know about this one. Yeah. There, there's a, maybe one part that you for sure got right when you said that Alex was going to go to Charmbridge, which that was kind of a softball in my opinion. Yeah, hanging curveball on that one. Uh, right. I don't know, Delbert. What did you think about the rest of it? You know, I here's the thing is I loved the idea. I loved the idea that you would just put a wizarding school right on top of a normal college campus, but it's not what happened. <laughs> not not at all. In fact, uh, it's not really hiding any in anything close to what I would call in plain sight. Right. No, definitely quite a ways away in some unpopulated, it seems, valley. So definitely not a passing grade this week, but I'm going back and forth between poor and dreadful. I, you know... Having been a teacher at one point in my life, you can reward people for the easy parts of the answer, but what's that going to get them, you know? Right, so dreadful. I'm going to go dreadful here. All right. Sorry, Baylor. That's all right. That's like when I got my first D on my first college exam. What a letdown. So uh, why don't you hit us up with Chapter 8? You know, that's the good news is Chapter eight's a chance for redemption. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think you guys helped me out there with a little little easy-peasy extra credit Uh kind of offered up that Charlie was, in fact, the bird that saved Alex. <laughs> and I had in my notes, I think Alex was able to complete the spell and enlarge Charlie, and that is who saved her and David. Um, but I do think that this wasn't just a malfunction in the bridge. I think one of the Ozarkers, the older Ozarkers, was responsible for this uh, disappearing of the bridge, and they specifically targeted Alex and David. And it was especially made easy because uh, they were the last ones to get on the bridge. And I, I believe, from what I understood, they were far behind the next student because of Charlie's mishap. That's a hot take right there. Yeah. All immediately calling someone evil. I guess we'll see if it comes it. to fruition or not. So that'll be the end of the episode right there. Uh, before we leave off, I just want to leave you guys with our socials. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore RM podcast. Uh, if you do it now, you'll see we've got some pretty sweet new thumbnail art for the podcast um, that we commissioned from an artist off of Reddit, and that was a pretty cool experience for us as well. Um, I did want to say, we haven't said this yet in the podcast, it's been in the description, but those little sound bites you're hearing right at the beginning of the podcast, those are courtesy of the creator of the official Alex Quick in the Thorn Circle audiobook, who's been kind enough to allow us to use those, and I think that's been a cool and fun addition to the beginning of our episodes but otherwise guys thanks for uh being here once again you know we uh we're far enough into this now that we can call ourselves semi-professional podcasters and that's been a big dream of mine for the last two months right five episodes exactly yeah i i think after the 10th you know we'll be the uh, blood oath and and all that stuff but for right now, we're just we're chilling with where we're at. Yeah, just so you all know, after episode ten, we're charging thirty dollars per episode. Uh, all those all those fees will be paid by Delbert himself. So unfortunate. Uh, at any rate, that's gonna do it for us this week, guys. Thanks for listening again. I've been Brady, and my two co-hosts have been Baylor and Delbert, and I just wanted to leave you guys off with uh, with one little bit of advice: if you become a Franciscan monk and you get into an alter altercation with a Jarvie, don't report it. Okay? Don't tell anybody. They'll kick you out of the monastery. 
All right, have a good night.